This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. While you're doing that, I just, uh, I will say that we had a great week at youth camp. I did survive, barely. But uh, that's only because I didn't get in a giant inflatable ball and atta- got attacked. I didn't get attacked by Peyton Flores, so thankfully that didn't happen to me. Oh, sorry, Peyton, didn't mean to call you out in front of everybody. Uh, we still have other students who are, are in, in, uh, in counseling after the, the big ball game, so we're good. Great week, uh, great time at camp. We've got students sitting everywhere. I see some up there. I see a couple there. We all dress alike now. That's kind of what happens after you go to camp. You, you get the free shirt. But uh, I will say that God did an amazing work among our students. We had, uh, uh, I would say, how many spiritual, how many decisions were made? I think every, everybody there made a decision. Some were already believers and, and were really drawn to the Lord to, um, to, to get more serious about their faith and to solidify some things. Some are still working through their own journey of faith, whether they were baptized before they really got saved and we're counseling them and others have have surrendered their lives to Christ. We're excited about that. We had uh, two of our young men in our new members class this morning, in addition to, to three others today um, that, are, that are going to be baptized shortly. So we're excited about what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. And um, it's just really the tip of the iceberg as we continue to see God work in all age groups within our, within our church family. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, kids camp we've mentioned is up, that it's coming up fourth through sixth grade. I know Mike, I think you mentioned a little bit about that, but um, summer is short, um, really. We only have about two months of summer and when you take out all the vacation time and the school required activities and everything else that families have, you end up with about a month worth of summer. Um, and then if you take out vacation Bible school and some camps and other things we've already got scheduled, there's not much summer left before school starts back. So I just wanted to encourage all of you, all you students that are enjoying summer, it's almost over, just so you know, it's almost over. And all you teachers, they're not real happy right now either. I can see that. But, uh, I will say that, uh, we already have seven students signed up for youth camp next June. So parents, if you've not signed your student up, now's the time to do it because you don't have to pay for it yet. So just sign them up. Get them on the list. It'll be on our website, easy to find tomorrow, but what a great week it's been. We're in Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Just follow along, if you will, if you have a copy of God's Word there before you. If not, there should be a Bible in the pew before you. If not, it'll also be on the screen. So, And for those that have no idea who I am, I'm David Tarkington. I'm the lead pastor here. So good to meet you. Glad you're here. Chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, the position and role of high priest in the Old Testament structure given to the Israelites is, is unique. It was uh, vital and it was characterized, characterized by God's specific guidelines throughout Scripture. Pastor Mike referenced much of this last week as we entered into this section that actually began in verse 14 of the previous chapter. If you're new to First Baptist, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews with every now and then going back to the book of Leviticus to look at how the Old and New Testaments connect and not just do so from a historical perspective, but to recognize and realize how the inerrant and immutable Word of God is not just relevant, but vital for us today. But as we look at this Old Testament understanding of the high priest, to understand Jesus being our ultimate high priest really is essential for us, perhaps more so for those to whom this book gained its title, to the Hebrew Christians in the first century who had grown up Understanding and studying the Torah, the books of the law, the Old Testament, embedded within the Jewish culture and, and faithful to that, and then coming to know Christ and recognizing that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law, and not only in his words but in his actions and in who he is as the Son of God, God the Son, fully God, fully man, but also as described here by the Hebrew writer, our ultimate high priest. These Hebrew believers sought to be obedient to the law of God, and they declared through their words and actions that God is one, as stated in the Old Testament, that he is redeemer, re rescuer, provider, healer, and ultimately, the great I am. And it is right and it is good to have, in the New Testament, the culmination of all the Old Testament prophecies stand before them in human flesh as they knew Christ to be, could be nothing but overwhelming, I guess, for those who actually saw him face to face, not to mention those who were in the early church. So the church is gathered, the Hebrew believers, even just a few years following the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and then the ascension, of course, described in the book of Acts. They're now in the presence of people who they call their brothers and sisters in Christ, the church members, the family of God, those they know personally. And if not they themselves, if, there are, if they didn't see Christ physically in this time, they have friends and family members who did. And so when Christ claimed the title of sonship and divinity, it was fully God and fully man standing before them. Again, that makes our head hurt, but that's a reality there. So our, our perspective today with what has been deemed 2020 hindsight, we may wonder how these people who claim Jesus as Lord could be struggling at all in their faith. I mean, they're so fresh in the world as the church and Christians and Christ had actually recently just ascended up to heaven. How could this be? How could they claim Christ as Lord and be struggling? But they were struggling. They were struggling to not abandon the teachings of the gospel. They were struggling to not abandon that which they had been told was true, the message of grace, the fullness of truth, and the revelation of the Spirit through the Word himself. And because of their fear, because of how frightened they were and the persecution they were facing, they thought it would be best if they could just go back to the way it was. In fact, as Jewish people in the first century, well, they were not foreign to persecution. But the level of persecution that Christians were facing in the first century made that which they were facing as Jews in the first century a little more palatable, at least they thought so. And then you add to it, if they are actually Christians who happen to be Jewish, it's like a double whammy against them, against the culture of the day, 
in the world that they are living in. And so they are really struggling with this because it would be easier to just go back to the same old, same old, to go back to the familiar. Nostalgia wins in their lives. There, are, there is that familiar, family-approved, religiously-affirmed way of life that they had prior to coming to Christ while just being a faithful Jew affirming the Old Testament law. And they were afraid. But fear leads to very interesting results. Thus, the author of this letter, through the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, gives instruction, clarity, and affirmation of who Christ is and why the Jewish old paths were good but temporal. And for the Gentiles, which would be most of us in the room, if not 99% of us in the room today who did not grow up with a Jewish background but are Gentile, as we read this, we may struggle to understand why any of this Old Testament connection to the new matters. For most today, when we hear the word priest related to Christianity, as we talked about last week, images of men with black robes and white collars comes to mind. But that's not what's being spoken of here. I'm thankful that Mike gave us a clear understanding of the high priestly role last Sunday. And I'm thankful that we're able to continue on today through chapter 5 to see even more regarding Christ's role as our high priest. First point I want to point to is that we're looking at the selection of the high priest. How did a person become a high priest? How did that take place? Now, I believe, I believe history matters. I believe we can learn a lot from history. I think history matters, especially to people groups who value oral tradition, as did the Jewish people of the first century, and especially all those during the biblical era. Family tree, genealogy, oral tradition, cultural uniqueness, and religious purity were important to the Jews of the day, and not only then, but now as well. Thus, when we look at the first verse of chapter 5, we see a declaration, a declaration regarding the selection of the high priest, the one who would stand as representative of the people before holy God. Israel could trace a succession of high priests back to the brother of Moses, the guy named Aaron. Even today, we are often taught of first. In fact, most of us are taught of first people doing amazing things or first people in a lineage or first time certain things happen. And, and if you're a person that likes to list, you end up remembering some of these first. Perhaps you were in school and these were some of the questions on tests. Most everybody here could name who the first U.S. president was. You can tell us who the first man on the moon was. You might know who the first person was to run a four-minute mile. Maybe not all of you, but some of you might know that one. You might know the name of the first artificial satellite that was sent up into space and orbit. You might know the name of the first black U.S. president or the first female prime minister of the U.K., and the list goes on and on. First are those things that kind of hit the, the list, and, and everything afterwards, we kind of just delineate that, but there's always the first, and only one person could be the first. So it, it's important, if not just fodder for trivia night, but for the Jewish people, you say, who's the first high priest in this order that is set here? Well, it would be Aaron. He was the first high priest of the people under this law, and Aaron in this role is, in verse, is referenced in, in verse 4. Yet, there is a descriptor here that gives context regarding Aaron, Moses' brother, and the position that he held as high priest. Now, some of you may be going, I'm not quite sure who Moses is. I don't have all the time to get into that, but Moses is one of the heroes of the faith. He is the man that was chosen by God, uh, who was born of a Jew in slavery in Egypt, raised for the first 40 years of his life in the Pharaoh's home. Then he escapes to the wilderness after he murders somebody, and then he is a shepherd 
shepherd out in the middle of a field for another 40 years. Then at age 80, he sees a burning bush. God says, you're the one. I'm calling you to go back to Egypt to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. So at age 80, he got his act together and did that which God called him to do. For some of you here today, there's still time. He lived for another 40 years. He led the children of Israel across the Red Sea, all the plagues, and and then he didn't make it to the promised land, but the next generation did. That's the Moses we speak of. We presume everybody knows all the characters, but that doesn't necessarily ring true in a soon-to-be post-Christian culture. You can't presume that. And we presume, well, everybody saw the movie. That movie is like 100 years old. Not everybody has watched that movie. That movie, you know which one I'm talking about. Right, Wizard of Oz. So when, (laughs) pay attention. (laughs) Who is Aaron? He's the brother of Moses. And when Moses was called to go back and Moses gave God all the excuses as to why he couldn't do it, God said, I've already got you covered. Moses is going, you don't get to vote, go. And so Moses and Aaron go as a team. Moses as the lead, Aaron as the mouthpiece. And then soon, well, years later, I guess, as you see this all play out, he is designated the high priest. Well, how does this happen? If you look at verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Appointed. He was appointed. Aaron was appointed. But who appointed him? Who appointed him? Who chose him? There was, was there a ballot initiative? Did they have a business meeting? Were there nominations, debates, selections, votes? Was this a democratic process? Was this congregational? No, not at any level was it any of that. And this rubs a lot of people wrong when you try to transplant our modern understanding of rightness and fairness and political expediency and how things should be organized and Bobby's rules of order and all of that. Robert's rules of order, I use Bobby's, it's an abridged version. You look at all that and you go, this doesn't seem very organized or very, you know, management, management leadership, not this. It, listen, it was an appointment and it had nothing to do with human fairness or a democratic process or individual rights. Aaron was appointed, meaning he was selected, meaning he was chosen, stated he was called. In our new members class this morning, I, I usually give a little brief history of the church. To, I've got it down to the history where it takes about three minutes now. It took 35 the first time I did the class, so I've got it down now. 1921, the church was founded, Carrie Clark, kids' Bible study, old building, new building, here we are. So that's kind of it, right? I've discovered that's really all people want to know, and I'm not sure they want to know that. But then Caleb's in the class this morning. He's one of our students. He said, uh, and I was talking about when I came here in 1994, and, I, and, and, I, and, I, and it really, Mike, don't get on to me of this. It was going to be a brief testimony, right? But I was going to say, you know, I got here, I finished up seminary, so I had to explain what seminary was and, and my calling. And then Caleb asked this question, which is, you're not supposed to ask this question in members class. It gets me off track. I never get back to the point. So he said, how do you know you were called? Well, um, I talked to church planners a lot, and I, I told one guy, I said, hey, I, you, most of you guys knew you were called to be a pastor when you're sitting in church and you listen to the preacher, and you said, I can do better than that. So that's how you knew. 
Sadly, too many of them went, yeah, that's about right. And I went, yeah, see, that may be our first problem with church planning. We've got to figure out this one. Uh, how do you know your call? We talked about that. You know, the calling is this, this, this movement of the Spirit of God upon a person. Our students, we used that word unction last week. I'm throwing old terms at them. And how God just kind of won't let you go. And it's more than a feeling of just, I feel like I need to do something. It's something that actually, when I surrendered to that call to be in ministry, uh, God was calling me to preach, so I negotiated youth ministry out of it. I don't know that I can preach. That's too much reading and writing, so I'll just do youth ministry. And yet God was confirming that was where he wanted me initially. And, and, uh, and so you have to walk away from something to walk towards something else, right? You can't, you can't say, well, can I have this, like, this, like, uh, this thing going on back here in case this calling thing doesn't work out? No, I don't think that's quite how it works. But, but it gets you to the point where you realize, I can't see myself doing anything else. And so finally when I surrender to the call and I make it known, then here's what happened. In my little local church, after we went public, actually it was the very same day that I told the church that I was called into ministry was the same moment I told my wife. So I did encourage people to kind of talk to your spouse prior. Hey, come forward. Let me tell everybody I'm quitting my job. We're doing this. This is great. What? Um, so reveal the truth. But then in our little church of about 100 people, all these people came by, you know, Baptist handshake line. You know, it's kind of how you did it. It's pre-COVID. So they're coming down. And, and almost to a person, senior adults, older adults, even young adults said, yeah, we knew this. We knew this. We knew you were going to do this. To which I said, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> Would have caused me, uh, Olivia had a lot of stress, but it was an affirmation that when you know you're called, God reveals it through his word. He reveals it and affirms it through his church. And a um, little different setting for Aaron but the same question comes, how did Aaron know he was going to be the high priest? God appointed him, and he called him, and he chose him, and he selected him. And because God said it, and because God voted, it was unanimous. God was a unanimous vote. Aaron's the high priest. And it was good. And it was right. And it was holy. The sovereign God, the king of all that is, ascribed the role to Aaron and placed him there. And then you see the connection to Jesus, who is the God who appointed Aaron, who is now in human flesh, the ultimate high priest. Now that's weird, but that's how it is. Jesus is the high priest, and it was declared by the, in the Old Testament Psalms. Look at Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk a little bit in a moment about Melchizedek. But here's where my brain hurts a bit, maybe yours too. The author makes it clear, and our understanding of biblical truth is apparent. The father appointed the son as the great high priest, the final high priest, the royal eternal high priest for humanity. Israel as a nation did not struggle with the concept of a sovereign. They understood the concept of king or ruler. But even in the Old Testament scripture, you'll notice that we often reference King David and King David, but when the calling upon Saul, the first king of Israel, and then the calling upon David, the first, uh, or the next king of Israel, the greatest king in the history of the nation, as it's stated, even in the Old Testament scripture, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't immediately use the word king for either of those. It talks about the sovereign and the ruler of the people because it reserves the title king for the only one who can be. 
For God himself is the ultimate king. And any earthly king appointed by God in that role is like a king under the king, like a prince. And so what you see here is that God himself, the sovereign God, has appointed Aaron, and the sovereign God has placed his son, Jesus Christ, the high priest. God, the same God, demonstrates his sovereignty using angels and other agents as he declares this role for the son. So we talked about the uh, selection of the high priest. Now I'm going to use, a, here's an interesting word, the solidarity of the high priest. That's a word that I, I, you, know, you may not use much. For those of a certain age, solidarity brings to mind a Polish revolution back in the 80s. But for the majority of those in here, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Solidarity. Theologian R. Kent Hughes uses the term solidarity this way to describe the high priest's position among the people. Not only is Jesus Christ the ultimate superior and final high priest selected by the Father, remember the high priest, the one that is intermediary, intercessor between God and man, but not only is Christ that ultimate superior and final high priest selected by the Father himself, he is also superior in his solidarity with the people. He is with the people. What does this mean in this regard? It means that in the high priest representation of all of us before the Father, Christ is with us. Christ understands us. Christ gets us. And that's much deeper than a really weak marketing program. Every high priest since Aaron stood in the place of the people, offering sacrifices for the people over and over again. The high priest was for the people. Did you understand what I'm saying? He's not a lawyer. He's not on the back of your phone book. What's a phone book? He is really for the people. Before someone grabbed the hashtag, Aaron, the high priest, the priest stood before the people, for the people, before God and sacrifice for the sins of the people over and over. Not only for the people, but the high priest also had to make sacrifices for his own sins. Now it shifts. In Jesus' case, the one who needed to offer no sacrifice for himself, for he is not a sinner, he has never sinned. He participated fully in the human story. He took on flesh to experience the full human condition. This way, this was made clear in Gethsemane where Christ's agony was on display as he prayed and sweat drops of blood, it said, came before, out of his head. Jesus placed the exercise of his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence under the direction of the Father when he came to earth in the incarnation. So truly, Christ, but even better than Aaron or any other high priest, good ones and bad ones, there was a history of them. The ultimate high priest, our priest, truly does get us. Again, not like a marketing campaign. He is in truth the son of God. He is also the son of man, a phrase he used to describe himself. Our high priest not only gets us, but he stands with us in the midst of everything that impacts us and affects us and overwhelms us and convicts us. Anything, anybody here have anything on the planet that impacts you? Anybody at all? Anybody? Okay, good. Anybody here have anything that shows up in your life story uh, that overwhelms you for at least a moment? Yeah. Anything that, that maybe convicts you or causes you agony or causes you concern. The human story is not foreign to God, not foreign to Christ. He understands it further and deeper than we could even grasp. So, 
He stands in solidarity with us. He is with us. But lastly, final point, it is the sacrifice of the high priest that is most important here. The word speaks, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says, or says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, don't misunderstand that Christ has always been perfect. It's a linguistic issue right there. The perfect Christ, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect, being, being revealed as the perfect sacrifice. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There we come with Melchizedek again. The sacrifices offered by the high priest in the Old Testament were to cover and provide payment due for the sins of the people, meaning that the job of the high priest was never over because people were sinful and they kept sinning and they always had to keep offering these, high, these sacrifices. The structure of the sacrifices, the order of the sacrifices, the way of the sacrifices, the why and the how of the sacrifices were not randomly put together. The God of order orchestrated these. The people and especially the priests were instructed in how this was to occur. I often think back, what if I lived in that era with all those sacrifices required for my sins? Can you imagine how inconvenient that would be for your life? Maybe that's something we're missing because sin is too convenient. It doesn't stop us in our tracks. It doesn't cause us to do something. It's just like, oh well. But there are things in this Old Testament strategy of life and, and sacrifice and you know, you gotta give up a sheep to be sacrificed in your place but not just any old random scraggly looking sheep. You gotta get your best sheep and offer that one. And then there are other sacrifices that come. The sacrifices offered by the priests of the old were made complete in Christ. The final sacrifice. For while Aaron and the priestly lineage was God-ordained and holy and right, the priestly lineage of Jesus was not really Aaronic, A-A-R-O, A-A-R-O-N-I-C. Had to spell it right. For as the psalmist alluded to and the writer of Hebrews declared under God's inspiration, Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who is this guy? Melchizedek was the king of Salem in the Old Testament. Salem is a placeholder, a name of a location that would eventually be known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He is the king of Salem. He's kind of like the, the, the opposite of the king of Sodom. You've got these two locations. That kind of gives you an idea. According to Genesis 14, he called him a priest of the most high God. Not unlike Moses' father-in-law was called a priest of the most high God. Jesse was also titled that. Or not Jesse, Jethro. He appears, Melchizedek does, on the scene in the biblical narrative for just a moment. I mean, literally, he is there. He shows up, there's Melchizedek, and boom, he's gone. I mean, it's like he's there and he's gone. If you want to like... I mean, you'd have to be more creative than the guy that wrote Prayer Jabez to make up stuff about this guy. I mean, it, it, I'm sorry. Did I just hurt your feelings? That's a terrible book. All right. Um, seriously, there's not much there. 
but there's enough. There's enough there. Let me tell you what we know about him. He appears on the scene in the biblical narrative for just a moment and disappears as quickly. He was a real man, but his place in God's story is mysterious as he interacts with Abraham following the man of God's defeat of Chedor Laamor and his allies. Yeah, I know you knew all this. Melchizedek appears. He presents bread and wine to Abraham. Not random, by the way, bread and wine. We may talk about that later today. He presents bread and wine to Abraham and to Abraham's weary men, demonstrating friendship and care. He blesses Abraham in the name of El Elyon, God Most High, and he praises God for giving Abraham victory. That's it. There's your Melchizedek biography. Until you get to Psalm 110 that David penned, and he speaks of Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He is a type of Christ, a man of righteousness and peace. Peace. Then here we have, he's not mentioned again, and then you get the Hebrew writer quoting Psalm 110 and speaks of Jesus Christ as a priest of the Most High God in the order of Melchizedek, meaning this, that Christ as priest superseded even the Israelite order of high priests that was begun by God through Aaron, and that Christ goes back even to Melchizedek and before that to eternity past. Some speculate that Melchizedek was an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. I already told you everything we know, so that's just speculation. Point taken is that the mysterious priest appears with no descriptor of lineage, and that's very common. This is so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. So that's one reason they speak of this, because they say Melchizedek had no family. He was just showing up. Well, they didn't give his family tree intentionally in the writing. He just shows up. No descriptor of lineage, no descriptor of his beginning, no genealogy, and thus Melchizedek the man represents the eternal. Now there's more to say, I'm sure, about the order of Melchizedek, but simply to start, the point is that Jesus Christ is not just another man in a long lineage of Levitical priests from Aaron's family tree. In fact, Jesus wasn't even from the tribe of Levi. Well, there, that's fun. But Jesus is our ultimate, final, eternal high priest before the Father. Jesus prays for you, do you know that? Isn't that weird? Does that mean God's talking to himself? Ask Mike Godfrey. <laughs> I'm giving all those questions to Mike. God is one in three persons. He is one. And he is the picture of perfect fellowship and union. Jesus stands in solidarity with humanity. Jesus offered the ultimate once for all and all-encompassing sacrifice for you and for me and for every person who would surrender their lives, confess their sin, and repent and be born again. In Hebrews chapter 5, again, verses 9 and 10, being made perfect, as I mentioned earlier, he was already perfect, understand what that means. Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ is the source of eternal salvation. Christ are you awake? Are you there with me? Christ? Christ. Say Christ. I learned that at camp. The preacher did that. It woke me up four times. <laughs> he made you repeat him. 
Christ is the source of eternal salvation. You get that? That means the nicest person, the most, uh, you know, citizen of the year has no heaven in their story if they have no Christ in their story. Christ is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the Jesus Christ we worship. This is the Christ who is our redeemer, our Christ, the ultimate Christ, our savior, the prophet, the priest, the king. And Jesus was selected to be our high priest. And if you are a child of God, if you have surrendered your life to God, you have the, you're not a high priest, but you are in the royal priesthood. How cool is that? You're in the royal priesthood. I was reading a story, um, uh, uh, a pastor friend, professor at Southern Seminary was talking about um, their church service they had a number of years ago. Up in Louisville, um, their church had purchased a building that was owned by a Roman Catholic church that had closed down or had moved. So they, they had sold that building. And so they would have services. And um, he said it was inevitable that about every Sunday, somebody who, did, you know, a Roman Catholic in the city that maybe didn't attend regularly was unaware that for the past five years, this was now a Baptist church. <laughs> hey, it happens. It happens with Baptist churches. It happens with others too. So just, didn't, just not aware. And so maybe traveling and they found a church, found an old map or an old notification or something, so they would come. And, and he says, he remembers, he says, usually they figure it out pretty quickly. Usually they figure out this is not a Catholic church. I mean, uh, primarily because the crosses are all empty. And then the order of the service. It's just different. I'm just telling you, it's a different understanding. But he said he was sitting there in the pew and, uh, and in the service, uh, he said, normally, you know, it, he, he, he's just hearing this couple behind him talking, very confused. The kneeling benches are gone, and the service is a bit different. They're, but they stayed the entire service. And they were questioning that the guy preaching is in jeans and a flannel shirt. That threw him. But then at the end of the service, they did uh, what we are about to do here shortly. They observed the Lord's Supper and that remembrance of what Christ has done for them. And at the end of the service, the pastor calls the deacons and the others, on, uh, pastors on staff and other leaders to come to help distribute the elements. And so they must have had 15 or 20 lined up. And here was the, here was the statement. I, I, it, I'm not making fun. It really is a great statement. The, the lady apparently leaned over to her husband and whispered, loudly whispered, they have a ton of priests at this church. It was clicking, but it was like, um, it, it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like if you walk in a movie, but you miss the first 30 or 45 minutes and you're not quite sure what's going on, but you kind of know. So she was in a church, they were in a church, but it wasn't what they were used to. So they thought maybe a little more modern, but then 15 to 20 men uh, up front and distributing the elements and they have a lot of priests. And it's kind of funny to think about that, but she was actually right. Not in the sense that they were all ordained and that they all went to seminary and that they all were uh, in in an understanding of of Roman Catholicism and the role of the priesthood there, but but that they were as children of God, as believers and followers of Christ, as representatives of, of him to others, members of a royal priesthood, just as you and I are. Now, 
I was thinking about that high, high priest concept, and I'm reading this book by Michael Wilder and Timothy Paul Jones. And just this morning as I was reading this, this, this stopped. So I highlighted it, and I said, I'm just going to stop there because I might read this today, and now I'm reading it. So here we go. When you think about who you are as a Christian, now I'm talking to Christians, not everybody here is, but I'm talking to Christians. Those of you who are Christians and you understand, hey, I am a, I am a royal priest. I can go directly to God with my prayers and my needs, and, and I, I, I have the Holy Spirit living within me. You absolutely do. You also have a high priest who intercedes for you named Jesus Christ. So that's kind of this weird understanding here. But let me just read this paragraph because it, it just hit me. It says, when we embrace this identity as a sacrificial priesthood united with Christ, we are able to live with confidence and freedom. Let that just sink in for a moment. That's not inerrant words. That's just some friends who wrote a book, and that's a great statement, though. We are able to live with confidence. Now, that's not business leadership confidence, you know, believe in yourself, motivational poster confidence. That's confidence because of who Christ is. That's, in, that's confidence in actually knowing who you are. See, our theme for camp was lost and found. There's a bunch of lost kids at the beginning of camp. There's more saved kids at the end of camp. So God, Christ has said in the story in Luke 15, the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. And when he saves you, he brings you into his family and you now have an identity and a name and you can live with confidence. And then it says, and you can live with freedom. That's a Galatians 5 statement. That's not patriotic, uh, God bless America freedom. That's fine. This is freedom in Christ. True freedom. But then listen to this. The worst that can be said about us has already been said about him. All right, students, it's summer. But schools are coming. Sorry. And even now, some of you have already told me, you kind of text your friends about you want to get serious with Christ and your friends are not having parties celebrating that. And some of you may have others in your life that are just waiting for you to get over this. So they may say things about you that will hurt your feelings. The worst that can be said about us has already been said about him. The most that we can suffer for him has already been suffered by him. And the most that we can lose has already been lost in his death and regained through his resurrection. We can both be vulnerable and bold, taking risks in our own love for others because even in suffering, Jesus Christ has gone before us, our great high priest. Welcome to the royal priesthood and be thankful that you have a high priest who stands before the Father in your place, who sacrificed his life for you, is in solidarity with you and was selected for the glory of the Father and for our good. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and Pastor Mike's going to come, and we call this little phrase, fencing the table. He's going to describe what we're going to do with the Lord's Supper, because it's not open for everybody, but you're welcome to stay, and I'd encourage you to stay. And for those that are, are joining us in the observance of this very special ordinance this morning, it'll be a time of worship. For those that get to sit and just observe and be a part in the room, I pray that it is a time, a very special time for you as well, and that God will use it in your lives. So, 
I'm gonna pray and ask our deacons to come immediately and, and get in position to distribute these elements. Our band members that are coming on stage know what they're going to do and then Pastor Mike's gonna come and direct us. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, for its inerrant, immutable truth that we can read today that is just as true as we said to our class this morning. It is as true today as it was in 1921 when you decided First Baptist Orange Park needed to exist. But even more than that, it is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. It is as true today as when every word was put down in a scroll or in an oral tradition in the Old Testament shared one with another. Your word is infallible. It is for us and for you. And I thank you, Father, that we have a high priest who is not simply human, but fully human and fully God. And I pray, Father, for those in our room today, in our midst today, that are gathered here in person and those that are even tuning online that may not know you personally. May today be the day of surrender and salvation. Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself and rescue us so that we can boldly say we have decided fully to follow you as part of your royal priesthood and your family. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.